A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian Welcome and tour guide. Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Gabber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by another Jewish History podcast, Jewish History Uncensored podcast, that's the name of it, by Rabbi Arnie Wittenstein. And it is, you know, you don't have this in many businesses where where uh, you have an advertisement for a another business because in other, in other parts of, in other industries, it's called a rivalry or a competition, but uh, not here and not in Jewish History podcasts. And I'm happy and, and very proud to, uh, you know, encourage you to listen to Rabbi Arnie, not only because it's a great uh, 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 podcast, Jewish History Uncensored, but also because Rabbi Arnie is a friend of mine, and I think he does a good job. Um, it's, he looks, he's looking at important events and issues in Jewish history, and he examines the sources and the details, and and uh, it gives a very accurate picture. Um, and he's he's going through a long series actually about the Baal Shem Tev and the origins of the Baal Shem Tev and the Hasidus and the Vilna Gain, a long, many, many episodes on the Vilna Gain and the confrontation between the Hasidic movement and the Vilna Gain, which is something I'll touch on in this episode as well. But he's going through a longer uh, series about it and uh, and the Magadim is rich and the different excommunication and cherems that were signed during the last quarter of the 18th century. So Reb Arne Wittenstein, who is a, a Talmud Chacham, and he's a world-renowned expert in Tanakh. That's actually his his primary expertise. He also has a Navi Shi'urim. He gives lectures all over the place in Torah Shraga and other places. And uh, I've heard a lot of his Navi classes as well. And he has, in fact, a, a weekly uh, or daily Daily, daily class in Navi um, with many, uh, several hundred participants. Um, so you want to, you might want to hear that as well. So um, just a few minutes, he goes through a whole passage of Navi every day, and uh, he uses his vast knowledge to be able to impart uh, these lessons of Jewish history. I'm going to post all the links, Jewish uh, history uncensored uh, website and to his uh, daily Nach class. I'll post those on the, uh, on the uh, description of this episode. So 
Moving right along, we're going to talk about the historical context and the role of the Sefer Nefesh HaChaim, the book that Reb Chaim of Alajin authored, and how that um, that played a major role in both the dispute uh, with the Hasidic movement and the of how it was written and what the structure of the book was and the influence and impact that it had literally to this very day. Uh, before I get to that, I want to make a, just a couple of uh, corrections. I got some nice feedback from the recent episode I had on the Bayan Hasidic dynasty. And uh, some all kinds of interesting information. I just want to mention a couple of uh, uh, corrections. Number one, the current Rebbe, the Rebbe Nachum Dov Breyer, who is the current leader and Rebbe of the Bayan Hasidic dynasty, so which yeshiva did he attend? So I incorrectly said that he attended Yeshiva Taravadas, and someone was quickly to, quick to alert me that he did not attend there. Okay, my bad. But then I started to look in, so where, where did he attend? So one that listener who corrected me on the Taravadas mistake said it was MTA. He went to the Yeshiva MTA. I took a quick look on his Wikipedia page, and it says he went to Yeshiva Hassan Seifer in Brooklyn, and yet another source, an Israeli source uh, I saw, says that he went to Yeshiva Zichrein Moshe in the Bronx, which I believe was Rebrochum uh, Gorelik, if I'm not mistaken. So there we have already three, four options of where he went to Yeshiva, and it makes it even more interesting is that this is not something so distant in the past. This is for something that happened relatively recently to someone who is alive and well and a very prominent and famous personality in the Jewish world. So I guess we I think, get to figure out which Yeshiva he actually went to. Um, he also assumed his position in 1984. Someone pointed out that I misspoke and I said 1944, which obviously is, is not, uh, not what I meant, uh, 1984. Okay, let's move on from Bayan. Um, so any sponsorships, um, for any episode and of course any tribute episodes of any recent Torah leaders who have passed on, um, you may, be in touch with me about that. But more importantly, we this coming week, it's coming Purim, it's getting very exciting, and have a episode like no other, something we've never had on Jewish History Soundbites before, really taking things to a new level. going to have a very special surprise guest on Jewish History Soundbites, and I can guarantee you that this is something like you've never heard before. And that will be the special Purim episode released later this week. So keep tuned for that. And also, if you'd like to sponsor that episode, which is going to get about 20 times the amount of views as the uh, average episode of Jewish History Sound, as if that it's even possible, because there's almost no one in the world who doesn't listen already. So I don't even know if it's possible to grow that much. But uh, you definitely want to use that episode to advertise your brand and your company, because the... Uh, reach it's going to have. That Purim episode is beyond anything imaginable in the podcast world to date. So the current episode, before we get to Purim later this week, is going to talk about, like I said, the Sefer Nefesh HaChaim, or Chaim Velazhin, and the role that it played in history. And this is kind of a continuation, kind of even a sequel to an, uh, an episode that I had a long time ago, a year and a half ago, maybe maybe less, maybe a little more, I don't remember the date, 
um, that was about the opposition to the Hasidic movement in the time of the Vilna Gain. And that was uh, a, 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 you might want to refer back to that because this is kind of a continuation to it. I'll, I'll post the link to that as well. Um, but I discussed on that, uh, on that, that time, and that, that story was about the, the, uh, active phase, we'll call it, or even the violent phase, um, which lasted for a little over three decades. It was from 1772 to approximately 1804. That's 32 years. And the one who led the opposition to the, to the nascent, there was a relatively new movement at the time, the Hasidic movement was the Vilna Gain, or Beliahu, the Gra, uh, the great uh, Torah leader of Vilna, and he and he signed all kinds of excommunications against the movement. The goals during the active phase was to remove remove the Hasidic movement entirely, to remove them from the Jewish people. The Vilna Gain said they are minim; they are they are uh, they're not they're not part of normative and regular Jewish life, and they must be removed and excised and excommunicated from the mainstream Jewish life. That were the stated goals of that active phase. And and that was a very limited in time and in scope, what I spoke about then. And it ended in 1804, both because of the Vilna Gain had passed away several years before that, about six years before that, so it only lasted a little bit beyond his passing. It, it, it lost its steam once it's... Uh, the main uh, leader who took the initiative uh, was gone. And also because in 1804, the Tsarist Russian government passed a, a series of laws pertaining to the Jewish community of the Russian Empire, which legalized uh, the establishment of shuls uh, and synagogues outside of the uh, recognized kehila, outside of the recognized Jewish community by the government, which essentially legalized the Hasidic movement and uh, and they they consider be considered part of the mainstream, and there was no recourse to the uh, Russian authorities, which had been a, uh, a way to uh, to further the Misnagdic agenda up until that point. So, so that the active phase ends, the violent phase ends, the excommunication phase ends at that point, and begins a new stage, which I'm going to talk about more today. And um, it's important to understand there's two different stages, and and the. There was the, the active phase, and then there was the ideological and theological and uh, a, 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 a dispute of ideas and ideals. And, you know, it had different goals, completely different goals. What were the goals of the first phase, of the phase I talked about last time? The goal was, like I said, to remove them from the Jewish people, to excommunicate. They're gone. They're not... They're not in the Vilna Gain's belief. They were not uh, to be considered hard because they are not. Uh, they don't uh, behave appropriately in his view, and therefore the goal is to remove them. Now, if we take a look, an objective look, in hindsight, perfect hindsight, twenty twenty, that the goal, if that was the goal, then uh, it was not a very successful campaign because in eighteen o four, when it ended, they were not removed from the Jewish people. They were still part of the Jewish people. They they were still a, a part of the Jewish community, so the the, the goals were not achieved. It, it, it we'll, we'll say, and I'm trying to find the uh, the way to say it without offending anybody. The it, it kind of failed uh, in, in its uh, objective. That 
is number one. Number two is is that it seems that it, it may have even been somewhat of a mistaken premise because uh, it was it was it it became somewhat apparent by the beginning of the nineteenth century, and this is clear from how Reb Chaim Velazhner approached the issue, which was very very different from his own Rebbe, his own teacher, his own master, the Vilna Gain is that they they were not, they were part of the Jewish people they were not there was differences big big differences and that's the whole nefesh Chaim, to explain those differences and to be quite critical of the of how he saw things but he definitely did not see them as outside of normative Jewish life and that came became apparent at that point so the whole approach changed so Reb Chaim um, of Alajan when he's born in 1749 and I discussed him uh, as a person in the context also in a few a few different episodes, but primarily in the uh, first episode of the series I did on the Velazhin Yeshiva, which is something that's uh, also a parallel to, to Nefesh HaChaim. It was the two great uh, uh, accomplishments, and there are parallel accomplishments of Reb Chaim uh, uh output. His legacy, as it were, was the building of the Velazhin Yeshiva, which obviously took place during his lifetime. And then, even though he wrote, he authored the Nefesh Chaim, the Sefer Nefesh Chaim, during his lifetime, but it was only printed after his passing, which I'll get to as well. So that is his other uh, legacy. So it also runs, this whole story also runs parallel to his educational project of the establishment of the Velazhin Yeshiva. So the, um, so he, when he's born in 1749, uh, there is no Hasidic movement. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov was still alive. He was pretty much just starting out, and there was no, definitely no large movement yet. Definitely not even a small movement yet. Um, so the 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 um, excuse me the uh, he he. But by the time he passes on in 1821, not only is it a movement, but it is huge and growing, and it's a force to be reckoned with. And he literally lives through that whole initial stage. He's witness to the whole process. He's witness to the active phase of the excommunications. He doesn't sign on any of them, which is a whole other you know, question of history. Why didn't he? Um, which I'm not going to get into. Um, but he, 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 he goes through the process. He's reflecting and reacting to a, a real a real uh, uh, religious and social and 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 uh, uh, um, issue uh, that he's confronting. Um, I would say also that there's you know lots and lots of sources about the the Nefshechayim and its historical context. Specifically for this episode, it's primarily based on what I heard uh, from Professor Benny Brown and what he's printed on the topic. Is someone who's gone extensively through this topic, and I. Have, was privileged to uh, have heard quite a bit uh, from him in that respect. So a lot of it uh, comes from that, and there are other uh, sources as as well. So the the um, so what happens is Rebbeim you know, he has Velazhin Yeshiva. He's an educator, and he comes across in the Sefer Nefesh Chaim also as an educator, which I'm going to try to point out. But he's also a polemicist. He's 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 arguing. He's debating, uh, and he's also dealing with real people. And he addresses the reader directly at several times uh, through the through the book. It's a very very unique sefer. The sefer Nefesh Chaim 
is not to be seen as as any like a regular safer, both because of the impact that it had and also the way it was written and the person who wrote it, the great uh, author, Reb Chaim Velazhener. Because not only did did so much of the Jewish world, that 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 the Lithuanian Torah world that developed over the next two centuries and continues to to exist and grow today is through his legacy. And even though in many ways, I mean, you ask the, the average the average member of the Lithuanian Torah world today might not even be familiar with all the concepts and ideas expressed in the book, in the Sefer Nefesh However, the society as a whole is very, very much influenced still today in values uh, that are accepted as as basic values in the Lithuanian Torah world are, are their roots can be traced to the Sefer Nefesh uh, many times when the average uh, member of the society does not, is not even aware of that because um, it's so ingrained within it at this at this uh, at this time, at this point so many many Torah books many Torah works in Halacha in Agada are timeless they're infinite they're Torah from Sinai as it were uh, and the, in the specific context of where it was written is it could be interesting but it's not uh, decisive for the influence and for the content of the Sefer. That's not the case with Nefesh Chaim. Nefesh Chaim was written in a very specific historical context, and uh, and and he's writing it like that. He's writing it, and he's 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 there's polemics in there, and he's he's fighting against something out there. He doesn't mention the the Hasidic movement even once by name, but it makes it very clear that he's talking about specific people, and he says. Several times throughout the Sefer, I've met with these people and I've spoken to them and discussed these things with them. And then he turns to the reader and he says, I'm addressing you as the reader, that you live in the world that we live in. And he describes either deficiencies or things that need to be improved in that world. So we have to understand that world a bit to be able to understand the the book and its impact. Um, so there's... There's two basic, uh, basic, you know, an, another couple of basic uh, things that we have to understand in the in this type of in this type of safer, is that in a traditional conservative society, a a rev, something revolutionary doesn't have to be a revolutionary idea. In fact, it's almost never a revolutionary idea. Why? Because you can't really have a revolutionary idea or new revolutionary content. In a conservative society, it's 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 nearly impossible. A very religious, traditional conservative society, it's almost impossible to have completely new ideas. So, at the end of the day, the many of the ideas are shared ideas, and you say, "Hey, this is not so different, and this is not so different, and we believe in that too." And he's quoting from Chazal, so Hasidim don't believe in Chazal, and they they sometimes the Hasidic works will even quote the same Chazal that uh, Reb Chaim Velazhener. Will uh, will discuss. So it, it's not the point that it's that it's revolutionary ideas either in the Hasidic world or in Reb Chaim Velazhner's uh, world. It's not the, that's not the point. The revolution is not a change in substance, but rather a change in emphasis. It's it's a new emphasis. What's the hierarchy? What's the emphasis? And here the emphasis is one way, and and in the other camp the emphasis is the other way. That is that, is, and that makes all the difference. So it's not different sources; 
It's not different ideas. It's, it is different ideas, but it's not that it's fundamentally different ideas, but rather a shift in emphasis one way or the other. And that's also important. So let's get to the, to the book itself a little bit. Uh, the Sefer Nefesh Chaim was authored by Reb Chaim and actually handwritten by him. And he does not get to publish it. He had his, was busy, he had his priorities. The yeshiva itself was, of course, something that he had dedicated his life to. He's also the rabbi of the town of Elazhen. He also was in charge of the fundraising for the, uh, the Talmidei Hagra community in Eretz Yisrael. He was, he was one of the great Torah leaders of his time. And he didn't get around to publishing it. Um, and he leaves in his will that it is essential and it's crucial that this be given a very big priority to be published. It's very, very important for it to be published. And he passes away in 1821. Three years later, his son, Reb Itzala of Alajan, who takes over, takes him over at the helm of the Alajan Yeshiva, he goes ahead and because of this will, this tzava that he received from his father, he publishes the Sefer Chaim Alajan and the first printing is in 1824. And he, and he explains in the introduction, his long introduction by Rabitzel, explaining what the Sefer is about and how important it was to his father and how he, and unfortunately he wasn't able to publish it until three years later. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the first publishing. It enjoyed very popular success. It was published many, many times throughout the century. But the second printing, which is the important one that we're going to speak about, is done also by Rabitzel 13 years later. In 1837. And what happens in that second printing? That second printing includes something new that was not in the first printing. It includes eight chapters, the Pirke Benayim. And those eight chapters, those missing chapters, are between, there's, there's the way the, the structure of the Sefer is, is that there are four Sha'arim, four uh, gates, as it were, four sections of the book. The first one deals with uh, man and his influence on the on the uh, on the heavenly spheres. Man, as a tzelam aleikim, as in created in the image of God, and how his actions and his deeds can influence uh, the universe and the cosmos. And the second section deals with tefillah, davening, and the power of prayer in the world that man can achieve. The third section deals with, among other things, but also tefillah, also with tzimtzum the constricting of the Shekhinah in this world, a lot of mystical and Kabbalistic ideas throughout the Sefer. And then the fourth and largest section of the Sefer deals with the value and the ultimate greatest value in the thought process and the worldview of Rabbi Chaim Velazhin, that of the study of Torah, Eisek the study and toil and total devotion to the study of Torah as a way of life. And those are the four sections. And all of a sudden, in between sections three and four, there is eight missing chapters. This is not section eight. This is eight chapters in between uh, three and four, which did not appear in the first printing. So what happened? Where was it? Rebetzalah goes out of his way to say that he is writing, in the introduction that he wrote to the first printing, that he is writing exactly what his father said. He doesn't add on anything. He's writing only the words of his great father. In fact, he's so careful that in the first section where Abitzala adds on comments of his own to elaborate and explain what his father wrote, he's careful to write it in a different font because he doesn't want you to be confused 
He doesn't want you to think that anything that he is even adding is uh, is something that his father wrote. He's not want, doesn't want it to be ascribed or attributed to his father. It's his own little extra comment. So we see how careful Rebetzalah was when he added anything. And uh, he only wrote exactly what his father did. So where did these eight chapters come from? How come they weren't in the first printing? And it's a big dispute. Uh, no one really knows for sure. There's no definite answer. Uh, possibly it was lost in the first printing and it really was there in certain editions. We obviously don't have the, every every safer from the first printing, so perhaps for some of them it was. Or, uh, for some reason, it uh, it wasn't included by Rebetzillah and he thought perhaps that maybe even his father did not want to include it. Why is it important? Who cares about these eight chapters? Because these eight chapters are more polemical than the rest of the book, than the rest of the Sefer. In these eight chapters, he directly criticizes many aspects of Hasidic thought and life, and he's he's much more subtle, and he's doing it throughout the entire Sefer of the Nefesh Chaim. There's an ideological dispute here um, between his worldview and the Hasidic worldview, but in most parts of the book, it's very uh, subtle. And here in these eight chapters, it's much more direct. And, uh, and, uh, and he, he addresses, and he even speaks. He's, he's much more personal in the way he discusses it. He says, I was in this town, and I interacted with these people. And I, and I, and I saw that what their base medrash looks like. And I saw what books are on the shelves. Um, he even says, uh, he even, and he says this, the truth is he says this several times throughout the Sefer, not only in these eight chapters, he says something that the Vilna Gain would never have said. He said, Kirvas Eloikim Yachpatsun. These people desire to be close to God. They mean well. And they are, they are part of normative Jewish life. They keep the halacha. But, and then, and then what follows is the criticism. He says they make mistakes in his view. And his, he, he's, he's to criticize in, in his view what appears to him to be incorrect. And he goes on to dispute it in a war of ideas. So he clearly interacted with them as people. He clearly saw them as part of the north of Jewish life. And this is a, a big uh, uh, shift from what his Rebbe, the Vilna Gain, did, because the Vilna Gain, as is well known, did not even want to meet with the Hasidim directly. He said, I don't want to even meet with them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to discuss anything with them. I want to excommunicate them. And here it's a, a, a very different approach coming at a later time. So, and in, in these, and in, in, like I said, in those eight chapters is where he addresses some of the issues much more directly. Um, so, the the um, not only that, but even in the thought of 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 Rukhaim or sometimes he, uh, in his ideas, he uh, is different than his Rebbe the Vilna Gaon um, in the Sefer. Uh, for instance, when it comes to in the fourth section, when he discusses the value of the study of Torah. He contrasts it with the, another value of Yira, of fear of God. And he goes on through several chapters, the fourth, fifth, sixth chapters of the fourth section uh, uh, in, in the Sefer Nefeshachayim, discuss about how important Yira is and as a preparation for the study of Torah. And you should devote several minutes before you study Torah to, to, to Yira. By the way, when he speaks about Sifre, Yira, the Musar, when he, when he's, relates to books of Yira, books of the, about the fear of God, 
and of Musr, of ethical, uh, he, he's, he means Sifrei Hasidus. He does not mean what's now called Sifrei Musr. He's talking about Hasidic books. But then he, that, that's when he talks about the books. But then he talks about the value of Yeres Shamayim. He's not talking about Hasidic books. He's talking about the obviously universal value of, 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 uh, Yeres Shamayim. And there, and there he seems to be uh, lessening the the value, he comes to say what would come to be a classic valajin, uh, later brisk uh, litvak uh, value, which was not like the later Musser movement, um, which also emerged from the base measures of Reb Chaim Valajin. The impact that Reb Chaim Valajin through the Nefesh Chaim had was both on the Musser movement and the anti-Musser movement. So not only was he relating to the Hasidic world and influenced the Hasidic world. He also influenced in many ways what would happen in the Lithuanian Torah world in the generations following the publication of the Nefesh Chaim. The ones who followed the Valazhin model and what would seem to be the direct model of, of what he was describing in the Nefesh Chaim in the fourth section was that only the study of Torah is important and the study of Torah can solve all the problems. And uh, that's, that's all you need. You don't need anything else. That's the recipe for everything. You don't, you don't, and he really diminishes the role of Yura, uh, as, as opposed to the study, the complete devotion to the study of Torah. Um, and that, and that influenced that train of thought, the total devotion to Torah, which is a continuation of the way his Rebbe the Vilna Gain lived his life. So there, it's a direct continuation of that tradition. It's a continuation of the way the Vilna Gain lived his life. As a person, a total devotion of 20, almost the entire day and almost not sleeping to the study of Torah. But in the writings of the Vilna Gain, the writings of the Vilna Gain, especially the first Sefer that was published after his passing, the Pirish on Mishlei, we can find in the Sefer Nefesh Chaim places where Reb Chaim interprets Psukim in Mishlei differently than the way the Vilna Gain did in his Sefer on Mishlei, where the Vilna Gain, his emphasis is more on the positive aspects of being devoted to Yira and Midais and Musar, and whereas Reb Chaim Velazhen will interpret those same Psukim differently to diminish uh, those values, uh, uh, not to diminish, uh, God forbid, but in relation to his the, the value that he ascribes to the study of Torah, uh, and in that balance, he, he seems to, uh, to be in favor, uh, um, much more of for the study of Torah. But then again, on the other hand, the Musar movement also comes from the Nefesh Chaim. And the student of Reb Chaim Velazhin, Reb Yasef Zundel of Salant, becomes the teacher of Reb, of, uh, Reb Yisrael Salanter. So the impact that he has is on both sides of the coin, and they both claim to be coming from the Nefesh Chaim. They both see him as a source. And, uh, and the the fact that the Lithuanian Torah world becomes much, the emphasis becomes the Ein The way the fourth section of the Nefesh Chaim ends is that the uh, the investment has to be in education, and uh, and Reb Chaim Reb Chaim comes across as an educator. He's he comes across as everything. This is a this is a manifesto. This is this is a, an entire world view. That, uh, that, that almost all the ideas that would become part of the fabric of the social life of the Lithuanian Torah world of the next centuries are to be found, the roots are to be found in here. 
the the uh, idea that the study of Torah brings one to all knowledge and to ruach hakodesh, to divine wisdom, that becomes the roots of what, of, an, of a new idea, a revolutionary idea that would become prevalent in the twentieth century. That's referred to as das taira. So it may have been new in the twentieth century, but it it may have had its roots in at least a century earlier in the uh, in the work of of Chaim Olajner that he was developing. The idea that there should be a total devotion to the study of Torah at the expense of anything else. So when the world is destroyed, when there's a complete destruction in the Holocaust, then what do we focus on when we rebuild? We have to rebuild the yeshiva. We have to rebuild the study of Torah. There's nothing else. And that influences what eventually is the Kailal world, the Chevrat HaLomdim in Israel, the Society of Learners, because the only thing we have left until Mashiach comes, until there's a Beis HaMikdash, we have is the study of Torah and the total devotion to that. And that is, and that is the highest value. I want to just end off with who was Reb Chaim writing against. It's accepted to say that he was disputing, his ideological dispute, over here, his polemics were uh, with the Hasidic movement of his day, the Tanya of Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, and others that were starting to to rise at that time. In other words, in the third generation of the Hasidic movement, it seems to be that uh, in, at that time the Hasidic movement itself was already shifting, and uh, the nuances are very minute at that point in the writing of Nefesh Chaim. And what it seems to be clear, especially when he becomes less subtle about his dispute against the Hasidic movement, is that he's going against the earlier Hasidic movement. He's talking about the Hasidus of the Baal Shem Tev, the Hasidus of the Magad of Mizrich, when he talks about, uh, um, when, when the Nefesh Chaim talks about all his ideas, his Kabbalistic ideas in the earlier parts of the Sefer, in the role of man, in, in his actions in this world, and in especially in the later parts of the Sefer, when he talks about his, the study of Torah and its value, and uh, and and its relation to dveikus, to cleaving, to connecting to God, he is polemicizing. I don't even know if that's a word. He's his polemics uh, are against the earlier Hasidus, the Baal Shem Tev and the Magid, and much less, or not really at all, against the uh, or not directly uh, uh, against the Hasidic. Uh, writings and thought of his day, or much less against, we'll say. I don't want to, I don't want to make any clear cut black and white, uh, divisions here. Um, so which is another historical point that's important to, to keep in mind. And that's uh, a little bit about the context of, uh, Nefeshachai. There's obviously a lot more, but that's something. If I said that the first stage of the opposition to the Hasidic movement ended in 1804 and it didn't really achieve its objectives, the, Positive movement that Reb Chaim Velazhner is building, not the excommunication. This ideological dispute that he's building. He's creating, first of all, a manifesto. He's creating a worldview that becomes entrenched in an entire society. See, he's building a value system. And of course, in his educational project, which runs parallel to that, which is the Velazhner Yeshiva, that has a lasting impact. And that has no end, really. Meaning this, the ideas that he expresses there are somewhat timeless and somewhat relevant till today in the in the in the in the uh, world that he was addressing, and um, and uh, and uh, it has uh, and of course it has an impact 
and an influence on uh, Jewish society until this very day. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.